You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there, and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 24th of November. Now, Dubai's futurists have identified 12 opportunities to advance climate mitigation adaptation and resilience. We're talking about proper blue sky thinking here. And Dr. Heba Shahada outlined several on the programme this morning, including one focused on restoring the Arctic sea ice. Meanwhile, Dubai's fishermen are to receive a donation of 27 million dirhams to encourage them to maintain their traditional and sustainable methods. So how big a role do fishermen play in protecting fish stocks around the UAE? To discuss that, we were joined by Fahim Al-Kasimi, co-founder and CEO of Seafood Souk. And as the Black Friday emails arrive thick and fast, offering deals and steals, we wanted to find out whether any of them are actually real. So we enlisted the help of Bruce Winder, a retail analyst with over two decades of experience. And there's a new flu and pneumonia outbreak in China, and it's getting people concerned. Beijing-based analyst Aina Tangan explained all. Meanwhile, a teenager living in the UAE has made it onto a global ranking of high-achieving women for her work as a climate champion. We chatted to Sagarika Shriram. And if you're wondering what to get up to this weekend, the newly reopened Global Village is introducing new attractions for the 28th season, including an intriguing mini world and adventure park. We got into the details with one of the organisers there. And speaking of weekends, there's a big weekend of sport ahead of us. Chris McCarty, our sports editor, joined us with all the latest on the F1. Lovely to have you with us this sunny Friday morning as hopefully we see you into the weekend. Specifically, if you finish your day at midday, we will quite literally see you into the weekend. Uh, But we've got lots of news analysis and comment to get through first. Uh, I suppose I think it's fair to say that some of the greatest minds of our generation are currently focused on finding solutions for the climate crisis that we're facing at the moment. And here in the UAE, it's no different. In fact, uh, if you think about it, many of these great minds are expected to fly into the country over the next few days for those COP28 climate change talks. And ahead of that, the Dubai Future Foundation has published a special report identifying 12 potential opportunities to advance climate mitigation, adaptation and Resilience. It's a really interesting report, and joining us now to talk through it is Dr. Hiba Shahade, who is Foresight Lead at the Dubai Future Foundation. Dr. Shahade, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on Microsoft Teams. Can you give me a little bit of a sense of, of the aim of this report and why you've published it? Good morning, and yes, happy Friday to everyone. Um, so I've been on the show before in that we've spoken about the Global 50 report that has been published by the Dubai Future Foundation in 22 and 23, focused on the future and sharing 50 global opportunities uh, for growth, prosperity and well-being. And what we wanted to do this year in uh, in the lead up to COP28, which we're all excited uh, to, to, to join and to, to see everyone come in in this really important event, is to have this special edition where we extract the nature related opportunities, future opportunities, and kind of bring light to a bit more detail as to what do really do they mean, what is the likely time scale, and what really we need to do in order to enable them. 
12 opportunities, not necessarily the only opportunities, but at the core of all of them is innovation. At the core of all of them is enabling climate restoration, adaptation and resilience um, and covering various, various uh, topics um, that are very exciting and uh, very interesting to have gone through. Yeah, indeed. There's a lot of blue sky thinking there. And that, of course, is the aim of the Dubai Future Foundation in many ways to sort of look forward, look into the sort of crystal ball and come up with clever potential ideas. Um, Some of the ideas outlined focus on climate mitigation. What have your futurists come up with when it comes to carbon sequestering? I'm particularly interested in the mobile super scrubbers and the unstranded assets categories. Yeah, I mean, again, because they're future opportunities, they can be captured from various angles. The angles that some of the experts who provided their opinion in the report covered are quite unique. Uh, For example, on the mobile super scrubbers, it was about the concept of of absorbing uh, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide, methane, and to capture them whether at that source or elsewhere in a city or a country or around the world to make an impact. The key with that is the fact that it's mobile in that we can move it anywhere that where it is needed. But the challenge that the researchers will have in the future is how do we make it scalable? If we absorb emissions at source or at certain places or in certain locations or wherever it may be, what kind of impact will that have elsewhere on the planet and in the world in order for together we can meet the goals that we've set out to achieve. In terms of the unstranded assets, I mean, the whole point is transitioning um, some of the assets that remain, um, you know, unuseful for us later on uh, for whatever reason, but at the same time, we can't dismantle them. What does that mean? How can we use those assets in a very um, innovative way in order to benefit the planet? So the idea with that opportunity is what if these abandoned oil rigs, which would cost millions to dismantle. How can we make them a force for good? Um, So one of the ideas is to engineer a a type of uh, of attachment that can actually capture carbon and and, uh, instead of, uh, you know, and, and play an important part there. Other researchers have also come up with other ideas for these offshore oil rigs that have been um, abandoned or not abandoned necessarily, but they have been uh, decommissioned. Um, And they've looked at building coastal communities and regrowing coral reefs. Um, So a lot of people are working on this solution, again, from different angles. But the angle we take in the report is more on the transition financing aspect and how that would be an enabler for further research and development. Another one of the opportunities I really like focuses on an international space station, but for the sea. How would that work? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one because many have tried to create this international space station for the sea that can help in terms of knowledge and science and discovery. And, you know, there have been projects that have been announced as a result. But what was interesting for us is the uh, High Seas Alliance uh, that has been uh, recently um, uh, ratified by the UN, by parties of the UN states, over 190 of them. Um, And uh, it's about, you know, protecting and setting out a certain uh, number 
number of rules to protect our high seas and deep seas um, and uh, because of the importance that they play in our future uh, involvement as well in terms of technology. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of interesting challenges that come with having this International Space Station um, uh, in, in the sea. But um, yeah, that's the angle that the report took. And uh, it's an interesting start. And who knows where it's going to lead us in the future. There's two that are quite closely linked. Uh, it is opportunity number one, a walk on the rewild side, which makes a case for phasing out land use for food production to buy to accelerate biodiversity and ecosystem restoration. And then actually your 12th opportunity, waterless farms, which suggests that there's different ways in which you can improve your farming output, basically. So you can, I, I see that there's also a focus on, on agriculture effectively. Of course, of course. Again, agriculture is one of those sectors that has a heavy uh, reliance on water and the use of water. And uh, the idea of the 12th opportunity is about um, using nanotechnology for reducing the amount of water needed for agriculture. And obviously, when you're working on rewilding strategies, that is a way also to enable that aspect as well in terms of what does that mean? Is there something else beyond nanotechnology that we can also um, reduce reliance of water and build natural ecosystems and let natural ecosystems thrive and actually work with us as in human beings to actually create something that is uh, good for the planet but also meets our requirements for food security. It's really exciting. It's really interesting to, to hear about the report. And obviously, I imagine all your uh, futurist researchers are going to be very busy in the warm-up uh, to COP28. And of course, when it takes place, it first starts on Thursday. You also have the Dubai Future Forum starting on Monday, don't you? Yes, we do. And we are very excited about that. And we also cover just in terms of um, um, we have a, a special COP uh, session where we talk about these kind of uh, future opportunities. And uh, also we have uh, a lot of foresight professionals and experts flying in from around the world to uh, talk about the future, shape the future together. Um, and so we are really, really excited for that as well. Yeah, looking forward to getting lots of coverage of that event on Monday and Tuesday next week. Dr. Heber Shahade, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really interesting to hear about that sort of blue sky thinking that you guys come up with down there at the Dubai Future Foundation. Uh, Dr. Shahade, of course, foresight lead at that institution. Thank you so much for your time here this morning. Right, we're going to sort of keep our eye on, I suppose, sustainable issues. I think uh, it's going to be quite hard to take our eye off those for the next three weeks. So just to sort of flag it to you now. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda. Right, a teenager living in the UAE has made it onto a global ranking of high-achieving women for her work as a climate champion. 18-year-old Sagarika Shriram was named on the BBC's 100 Women of 2023 list this week. She was one of 28 entrants in the Climate Pioneer section of the collection. And essentially, the BBC drew together uh, a group of inspiring and influential women from around the world. It is an incredible honour, really exciting. And I'm delighted to say that Sagarika joins me now in the studio. Thank you so much for coming in. It's really lovely to have you with us. Did you know that you were going to win or was it a, a total surprise? Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I got nominated for the award, so I had a little bit of advance notice, but 
I honestly did not believe that I'd actually get it. I didn't, it was not something that I thought I would actually end up getting. So it was definitely a big surprise at the end of it. Um, but yeah, the recognition was incredible and it really just made me feel like the work I was doing was being heard on such a global level. Um, so yeah, it was great. I mean, it really is a staggering recognition. So mm-hmm. congratulations to you. Thank you now, so much. Now, uh, you were nominated specifically for your work as a climate champion. When did you first become interested in, in eco issues? Because you're only 18 now. So I began my environmental work when I was about 10 years old. Um, I had just finished a course with John Hopkins Center for Talented Youth on HTML coding and web design. Um, And then around the same time in school, I was learning a little bit about, you know, the climate crisis and what was going on on our planet, but it wasn't really in detail. So I started doing my own research and just looking into like what the specifics of it. Um, And I came across a National Geographic documentary on the impact of plastic in the oceans and the impact it's having on the animals and things like that. Um, And then that really just struck me because I started seeing the impact of it. And I wasn't being taught this in school and I I didn't know how to help. Um, And I almost felt useless. I didn't want to be in that position where I felt like I could not make a difference. Um, And then just having this platform and I use my skills from HTML coding and I decided to create Kids for a Better World, my website, Um, because I honestly did not want other children to feel the way I felt. I wanted children to be educated about the climate crisis um, and know how to deal with the impacts of it. And that's how it all started. And yes. eventually, you're, you, but you've been balancing this in parallel with your schoolwork as well, haven't you? Yes, exactly. So I just graduated from Jumeirah College um, and I just finished my A-levels. So it's been a very busy time. It's been a long slog. I think I've actually spoken to you in the past, but I we had we to have. do a Zoom interview because you were actually studying at the time. So you couldn't come in. Yes. So you still took those exams very seriously, I know. Now, obviously... It's a week to go, less than a week to go now to Expo uh, Expo Cities COP28. Um, I remember asking you like a year ago about about how you were preparing for that, how, what role you were hoping uh, to perform in the in these climate change conference. What what role have you ended up performing? Because of course it's it's now exactly yeah <laughs> no so no it's finally here. Um, I think it was very much up in the air for a really long time, but now I will be attending with UNICEF, so I'm going to be going as a youth delegate with UNICEF. Um, and I'm mainly going to be attending a lot of events which focus on climate education and children's participation, specifically in um, when it comes to decision making and involving them in decision making and formal agreements and things like that. So I recently just returned from Geneva as a part of the United Nations Children's Advisory Team. Um, and we released a formal document called the General Comment Number 26. So it's a charter that highlights the rights and demands of children globally. Um, in the climate space. So I'm going to be discussing that a lot this time at COP, um, especially with, you know, this COP's focus on being completely inclusive Mm. and including children and adults um, and people of all different backgrounds. Um, I think it's incredibly important. You mentioned there that when you were younger, you don't feel like you were learning enough at Mm -hmm. school about climate change, about plastics, about rubbish, about recycling. Do you think that's now changed or do you think there does need to be greater scope uh, in schools? Um, I definitely do think it's changed. I think there's been a lot of progress, especially since when I started my work. I know that there were barely any organizations that were here to support me. Um, And my school, I was learning about it, but not in the detail that I should have been. Mm. And I think recently, especially with, you know, the UAE's focus on sustainability and this year obviously being the year of sustainability and things like that, um, climate education has been incorporated to a much deeper level. I think 
It was always incorporated, but my focus was on the fact that it should be incorporated in all its different aspects. Mm. So not simply in like geography or biology or things like that, just in the fact that just regardless of what you're studying, you can relate it to the climate education. Um, and, ch- and children should be taught about that. So children should be taught that regardless of what they want to do in the future, um, they need to know the skills to survive in, in the uh, world. Yeah. Big question to ask you. Are you hopeful for this COP28 conference? You know, you're from the younger generation. You're very much being seen as the voice of that younger generation. Do you think the adults are going to pull it together? Definitely. Um, I think in the past, there are definitely been situations where it's not really worked out to plan. Um, But being so involved in this year's COP, and especially attending COP27 in Egypt, there has been an increased focus on obviously achieving the goals that have been set, um, especially with this COP being the first global stock take. So looking back at the agreements that were made in the Paris Agreement earlier and just trying to see where the progress that has been made, if you're going back and doing something like that, then you can definitely see some final changes that will happen after this COP. And just the focus on involving children and the youth in the decision making is incredibly important. Because I know, especially being someone in this space, I've experienced it firsthand where I haven't been listened to. Um, and I just, I, I felt like, even though I felt like I had the knowledge, I was not being heard. And I know this COP has a lot of focus in involving the youth in decision making and really hearing what they have to say. So I do think a lot will be coming out of it. Well, if we've got you advocating for the UAE, then I feel a lot more confident about where we're going. So thank you very much indeed for joining us in the thank studio. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you again. Sagarika Shriram there. She's 18 years old um, and has been nominated, named in fact, on the BBC's 100 Women of 2023 list. An absolutely extraordinary accolade. And we wish her all the best. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now, we are going to uh, try to look at that international news story now uh, concerning a sudden rise in respiratory illnesses and pneumonia in children in China. Now, the authorities say those uh, those cases should not raise fears of another pandemic. That is according to leading scientists at the World Health Organization. They say China has now provided data showing no unusual or novel pathogens have been detected. The WHO had asked China for more information. That's after groups, including the Programme for Monitoring Emerging Diseases, had reported clusters of undiagnosed pneumonia in children, specifically in North China. Joining us now to give us a few more details from Beijing is Ina Tangen, who is Senior Fellow at the Taiha Institute and also Chairman of Asia Narratives. Joining me on the phone. Ina, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. Tell me, have there been a lot of cases in North than China then? Well, there's been a lot of cases, but you have to understand that's also true whether you're in Europe or America or anywhere else. Remember, over the last three and a half years, uh, people were shut down. Everyone was concerned about COVID-19. So they weren't getting their regular flu jabs. So you're having this kind of uh, spillover effect uh, where people who have not had their flu jabs, especially children, are very, very vulnerable to uh, the regular flu. And 
you know, let, let me stress what has happened here is that there were abnormal clusters, as there are in other places. The WHO uh, requested information. The U, uh, China responded within the 24 hours that is allotted. Uh, that was uh, Thursday. And they indicated quite clearly that there have been new, no new pathogens. And uh, they, that's really the issue. Uh, the, the WHO wanted to make sure that there's nothing novel new, different about what is happening here. So it's just your regular bugs. And in fact, I think this is a sort of a, uh, this spate of cases is something that we saw here in the UAE just after our COVID restrictions were dropped. How is China recovering now? Because I think it must have been about a year, six months, not a year yet, is it? About six months since the end of social distancing in China. Yeah, it's been about seven or eight months. Uh, China is recovering. I mean, it's it's amazing uh, to see just how quickly people forget about uh, the pandemic. Uh, people, everything's kind of returned to normal. If you talk to people, they say, "Oh, yeah, I remember." But you know, right now, I'm concerned about the things right now. Right now, if you ask uh, anybody on the street, they're more concerned about the uh, you know this this uh, geopolitical situation, what's happening in Gaza, Ukraine. Uh, the economics, not only within China, but also globally, uh, you know, obviously the ecology, they were prepared for this idea that, you know, look, you know, everyone's had and has their uh, flu jab in three years. And there is possibility that this would be uh, a more severe season than most simply because of that. We're always keen to see more Chinese tourists here in the UAE. Is it now getting easier to travel? Because I know there was a bit of a backlog, wasn't there, with uh, passport applications, for example, because everyone's passport had expired during the COVID pandemic. <laughs> yes, funny how three and a half years will change your uh, passport. <laughs> uh, things, and, and there's been a huge backlog uh, going in. I was just in UAE um, uh, literally last week, uh, and I had no problems whatsoever uh, coming in and out. I'm a U.S. citizen, but uh, I saw tons of Chinese coming in. Uh, and I, I know there's a charm offensive. Uh, there are so many uh, Chinese who are uh, very interested in, in the Middle East, especially as you know the relations progress. There's a lot more investment. Obviously, uh, the, the Middle East is very important in terms of uh, oil um, and energy. So uh, there's a lot more curiosity. I've, I've noticed a, a tremendous number, upswing in the number of Arabic students who are studying in China. And that has led to people being, you know, like, oh, wow, you're, you're from, you know, UAE. You know, what is that like? And things like that. Oh, it's, it's nice. And this is a good time to go. Well, uh, maybe I will. And, and it's, a, it's a new vista. I mean, it was just incredible sitting uh, in uh, Abu Dhabi, looking out over the water, uh, seeing the uh, Imperial Palace and just kind of enjoying the incredible weather uh, mm. that you have this time of year. We are having very good weather indeed. I can't believe you, you were in town and we didn't get you to come into the studio. I know we'll have to do that again uh, sometime soon. Hopefully you'll be you visiting. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Always good to get analysis and straightforward facts out of Ina Tangan, Senior Fellow at the Taiha Institute, Chairman of Asia Narratives, bringing us up to date on that uh, case or those cases of respiratory illness and pneumonia in children. Uh, there was a certain amount sort of concern expressed earlier this week. But now that uh, China has reported back within their 24-hour period to the World Health Organization, we can all be reassured that it is not the start of a new pandemic.
Welcome back to the agenda. Right, we're going to take a look at fish now. <laughs> you might wonder why, but no, no, there is sense uh, to what I'm saying because Dubai's fishermen, as you might have heard on the news actually, are set to receive a donation of 27 million dirhams. The general gist of it is they're being encouraged to maintain their traditional and sustainable fishing methods. Now, that distribution is going to come via the Dubai Fishermen's Cooperative Society and they're hoping that it'll encourage fishermen to preserve the marine environment around the coast of the UAE. So how big a role do fishermen play in protecting fish stocks around the UAE? I have to admit, I didn't realise that we still had a lot of fishermen. Sort of a bit of a weird juxtaposition there between, you know, Dubai being this busy metropolis and then, you know, there's people still carrying out traditional roles, I suppose. It's just it's just really interesting. And I wanted to find out a bit more about it. So earlier I was joined by Fahim Al-Kasimi. He's the co-founder and CEO of Seafood Souk. And he explained why sustainability in the seafood market here is such a pertinent issue. Here at Seafood Souk's office, we tackle the issues you're talking about head on every day. The fisheries sector in the UAE is about 2 billion uh, dirhams uh, annually of local catch. Um, and it's extremely important for us uh, as um, a traditional uh, part of our culture. So the government and the leadership, as you would have seen uh, the announcement yesterday, is extremely focused on protecting uh, that part of the economy um, that has its role in protecting tradition, um, but also food security. Uh, a lot of people eat fish here. We have the highest consumption per capita in the world um, at about 28.5 kilos per person. Um, and uh, more initiatives like this, especially in such an important year of sustainability, will make sure that we are, uh, let's say, sustainably interacting or harvesting uh, fish from, from, from our seas and oceans. It's a really interesting sort of intersection between traditional life, um, food security, and then layered on the top of that, of course, we've got the constant theme this year of sustainability. What does it actually mean when it says you know, fishermen should pay a, play a role in protecting fish stocks. Is it is it super simple? Is it just not catching baby fish? The fishery sector, uh, Georgia, is extremely, extremely complex. Uh, it, it's why Seafood Souk has tackled it with technology. Um, we're, we're pretty thrilled to be working with, with government agencies here and in the region to, to help them fish better. Uh, let's start um, with the consumer. Uh, a lot of people do not ask where their fish come from. Uh, that's something that we tackle head on with our traceability. And I encourage anybody that is buying fish here to really ask where that fish came from. Is it local catch? Is it imported fish? As you walk backwards through the supply chain, you end up uh, in a situation where there are some key species we eat here from the UAE, Sha'ari, Hamur, and so forth, where I think um, fishermen go out and catch them in different ways. Um, there are ways that are a little bit more detrimental to the ocean, uh, specifically gill netting and so forth. Um, and then there are more traditional ways, interestingly, the way we used to fish um, uh, at the time of our forefathers is in fact more sustainable uh, and, and that's harmful. Um, the traditional line caught is something that is extremely sustainable. You can release fish that are um, uh, juvenile or too small. Um, and you also have very little bycatch than when you use nets, i.e. you don't catch things that you know I'm extremely fond of, like turtles and so forth. Um, so the commitment from, from the leadership is clear. They're balancing um, a protection of tradition, as you rightly said, uh, of uh, food security challenges of the country, um, and last but not least, then making sure that we're not 
uh, over-extracting, let's say, uh, fish from, from our seas and oceans. I guess the balance there to play is that you catch less fish if you do it with a line than you do with a net. And of course, that plays into the profit that those fishermen are making. And therefore, is that why they need this extra boost to their income? Not necessarily. I think countries around the world, the UAE is not unique that uh, the fishery sector is, is protected, is subsidized, um, and is heavily regulated. Uh, for us, this support mechanism allows uh, the seafood industry, at least the captured fisheries industry here, um, to focus on having the right equipment on the boat uh, to make sure that there is sufficient amount of ice on the boat so we reduce wastage. Um, I'm not clear on how exactly uh, the fishermen will be using those funds, um, but it will definitely be to make sure that the, the right product comes to the market because people do love the, the, the fantastic products that, that, that are you know, home to, to our seas here. Um, and then make sure that we can continue uh, to protect our fishing industry and not lose it um, over generations to come. Looking ahead to COP28, are you hoping that uh, fish stocks, that the oceans will be uh, top of the agenda at these climate change talks next week? I've been a strong advocate for this, Georgia, you know this. Um, If you were to count the oceans, it would be the world's seventh largest economy, um, and it's a shared asset for the world. Uh, I'd like to see more investments into the oceans personally, um, for a number of reasons, but I think that um, COP28, uh, look out for us, will be there quite quite predominantly in, uh, across all ocean discussions, um, and I'm sure that the country's going to have such a successful event um, in the weeks to come. Yeah, I can't believe we're almost there. I've been flagging it for like two years, and now it's next week. It, the, the years come round so quickly. I suppose people listening to this might, might, you know, we're all kind of trying to make little steps in our own lives to be more sustainable. What's the best way for someone who wants to eat fish uh, to sort of take an eco-friendly step uh, in order to ensure that they're not damaging stocks or, or eating rare species, for example? The most important thing to do is, is make yourself more knowledgeable. Uh, read the resources that are provided by the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment because they do let you know which fish are in season and not. Um, to hold your uh, supermarket retailer to account uh, and ask them where the fish comes from. We have a technology that does this, uh, that called SFS Trade, that um, the hospitality industry uses today to audit their seafood. Um, and we'd love to see more of the retailers and more hotels and restaurants use our tool so that they can make sure they can, they can let the consumers know exactly what they're eating and where it's come from. Fahim Al-Kasami there, co-founder and CEO of Seafood Souk, offering us good advice. Morning. How much have you spent so far? It is Black Friday. And if your inbox is anything like mine, you'll know that already because you'll have had a lot of emails and actually text messages. And they've even invaded my WhatsApp messages. And I have to say, I am... I don't know, ripe for the plunder. Is that the right way to put it? That sounds well dodgy. Um, But yeah, I have to say I am very receptive to the promise of discounts. Uh, But are these deals really all that they promise to be? Unfortunately, research says maybe they aren't. Uh, Wallet Hub's holiday shopping survey found that over a third of items at major retailers actually offer no saving on pre-Black Friday prices, while another analysis of this year's deals suggests a staggering 98% of deals were actually the same price or even cheaper at other times of the year. So maybe 
Surely not. We would be better keeping our credit cards in our wallets. Well, to find out, earlier I sat down with retail analyst Bruce Winder and I began by asking him if there are still genuine deep discounts to be found. Yeah, I really think there are good bargains to be had um, because consumers have been conditioned to look for bargains. And depending on uh, which country you're in around the world, the consumer has lost a little bit of confidence economically. So retailers realize that to get consumers out of the chair and into the store or online, they really have to offer compelling deals. Um, this has been difficult in some ways because inflation has uh, made its way around the world. But retailers are still going to try as best they can to offer really compelling prices, discounts. They may shower consumers with loyalty points. They may you know, do deals where you buy more and you save more. You know, really anything that'll try to get the consumer out of their chair and into their store this year. How big a deal are the Black Friday sales for the retailers themselves? Do they make a, a lot of money around this time of year? Yeah, I mean, retailers can make a lot of money if you position it correctly. Retailers used to be in the red or they would lose money up until Black Friday. And then just based on that one day of sales, they would go from being in the red to being in the black and making money for the year. But definitely um, you need to do it. Now, there's a couple of tips, though. One is you need to plan the items you're going to sell a year in advance and work with manufacturers with big volumes to come up with really good pricing from the manufacturer's perspective so the retailer can pass that on to the consumer. The other thing you need to do is you need to augment the products that are really, really, really low price with products that are sort of medium discounted or medium priced, where you're hoping the consumer will come in and buy more in their basket than just the items that are on sale. And one of the key ways to help that too is buy more, save more. So the more the consumer buys, the more they save. That helps the retailer make money in this period. So that's how the retailers are making money. How can we as consumers get the best out of this situation? Because I know a lot of people wait for the Black Friday sales to buy things that they might have wanted for a really long time. Yeah, some people use the Black Friday holiday really to buy some essentials. But the way to really navigate this if you're a consumer is make sure you shop around. There's a bit of an emotional play. When we see a flyer, an advertisement, a circular that says, you know, pay 70% off or 50% off, we automatically emotionally think, oh, I got to have that. It's a great deal. But just make sure you look around, shop around and look at the specification of the item. You know, if it's electronics, what's the memory? What all the little specifications on the item to make sure you're actually getting good value. Because retailers can play some games with the specifications sometimes to despec an item to hit a promotional price point, and that might not meet your needs. So it's a bit of a buyer beware uh, mentality. So that is particularly easy to do if you're buying online, if you're e-shopping. Has most of the shopping for Black Friday now moved online? No, it's still a bit of a hybrid between online and in-store. Now, the good news is, you know, consumers in store, too, they're going to use QR codes. They're going to use the Internet to check an item. Even if they see it in the store and they're not online right now, they're going to jump online in the moment with their mobile technology and check to make sure it's actually a good deal and do a little bit of competitive shopping in the store, if you will. Wow, that does make it really difficult for retailers to, to make money in this situation because they can't pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one thing the Internet has done is it's made a lot of people honest because you can't hide. You know, you can't really hide from value. You either offer something that's valuable or you don't. And if you don't, people don't buy it. If you do, people will buy it. But boy, you better make sure that you've negotiated a, a good arrangement with your manufacturer 
so that you can at least as a retailer make 10 or 15% gross margin on it. So what are the best sort of sectors to look for bargains? Is it in the electronic sector or more in clothes and sportswear? Where would you look for the best deals? Where do you think we might find the best deals? Yeah, great question. I mean, if you think of the Black Friday period, it's usually synonymous with consumer electronics, small appliances, apparel, footwear, those kind of things. But what's happened over the last few years is almost every category that a retailer sells has been put into that Black Friday bucket. So you'll see everything, you know, any type of appliance, but it's mostly giftable items. But then again, to your point earlier, even people are looking for essentials now. So even some essential items might be in that basket as well. So retailers want as much sales as they can. They want to make as much money during this time. So they're going to load it up with as many items as they can from their assortment to take advantage of the marketing emphasis with this holiday. Something I've seen this year that has really surprised me is airline Black Friday sales, where you can actually buy flights early. And of course, flights have got so expensive recently. That's very appealing. Do you think those are real deals? I think they have to be because I think consumers are just too savvy these days. And because of the internet, like I mentioned earlier, there's really nowhere to hide. So if you if you have a Black Friday special and you're any type of company, I think most companies, especially the bigger ones, will make sure that there is some good value there. Now, is it 50% off? Probably not. But is it a few percentage off, maybe 10, 20, depending on the category? There's some savings there. So I think that's the difference is they can still call it Black Friday, but the savings might be you know, good, but not amazing, but it's still okay. It still counts as a discount or a deal for the consumer. Now, growing up in the United Kingdom, traditionally, the big sales were after Christmas. They were the New Year sales. If you had to pick right. a sales season when you're going to spend your money, when do you think the best deals are? Around Black Friday or after Christmas? Yeah, it's a great question. And it varies a lot by the category and the products you're looking for. But all things equal, Black Friday period is probably the best because you also will have some inventory there. You know, the longer you wait, you might find some distressed merchandise that they're clearing out, but you might find odds and sods. You know, you might not get the product in the size you want. So if you want to be safe and get a good deal, probably right now. That is Bruce Winder. He is a retail analyst with over two decades of experience. Welcome back to the Agenda Right. We uh, now have an announcement that you might have missed. Uh, There is so much going on at the moment, but Global Village has opened for its 28th season with a whole world of new attractions, including more food offerings and uh, more fun for the kids. Now, we wanted to find out more. So a little earlier, I spoke to Zaina Dagha. She is the Senior Vice President of Operations at the Popular Park. And she brought me up to date with all the latest announcements. Uh, it's really intriguing to hear about what's going on down there. So let's have a, a, a quick listen. This season is like no other. We're celebrating season 28. And as they say at Global Village, a more wonderful world. We're celebrating over 90 cultures. We have 27 pavilions from all over the world. And we have over 250 dining outlets, over 150 rides, games and attractions at our carnival for this season. And we have exclusively opened Mini World as well, which has an amazing mini golf, a new wonder stage and so many monuments from all around the world that's taking place at Mini World. It sounds very much focused on 
children this year. Is that the case? Have you got lots of new attractions for the kids? That's correct. We've actually have we have, like I said, uh, monuments from all all around the world. So kids, um, teenagers, families can come over and just experience those different monuments. We have, for example, the Dubai Eye, um, uh, Eiffel Tower, different countries from all around the world. Uh, there's the mini golf. You can come in with your friends and play mini golf. Re- in, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we will be opening as well the Neon Galaxy, which is like an outdoor adventure play area for kids. It has climbing walls. It has soft play areas. Very exciting, very adventurous for kids as well. And how about adults? Here at Dubai Eye, Brandy and I are huge fans of the shopping uh, in particular, we oh, like yes. to go to the Moroccan pavilion to get these sort of sequin beach bags. But I know that there's plenty more on offer there as well. Actually, the Moroccan pavilion is one of the most uh, popular pavilions we have. We have at Global Village, but there's there's so many different pavilions with so many different offerings. You have the UAE pavilion, China, Thailand, Turkey. You can actually pick up anything that you want from any country that you want right here in Dubai. Zina Dagher there, Senior Vice President of Operations at Global Village. And we will be hearing a little bit more from her later on in the programme because uh, there is plenty more on offer down there at that theme park. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Right, let's find out all the latest sporting headlines. It is a massive weekend of sport locally. And our editor, Chris McCarty, has all the details. Yeah, we've reached the promised land of a Friday. It is the day that I celebrate more than any other. Why? Well, because we've got a wonderful weekend to look forward to. And sport... Well, you've only got to look close to home for the top story of this weekend. It is the Formula One Etihad Airways Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Not much on the line. There's jostling for third and fourth in the Drivers' Championship, but it's been done and dusted for a while now. Max Verstappen, a three-time Formula One world champion, lest we forget. 18 wins in 21, that's already a record. He's looking to make it 19 in this remarkable 2023 season. All eyes on Yaz Marina Circuit. It's going to be a fantastic weekend down there with some huge artists. It's Chris Brown a little later tonight. Shania Twain tomorrow. And then, of course, we round off with Foo Fighters on Sunday. So F1 fans are well catered for this weekend. As for the football, well, club football is back. And there's one fixture that is looming large on the horizon. That is the biggie tomorrow. It is Manchester City against Liverpool. That is your UK lunchtime kickoff off at 4.30 here. That one should be a real cracker. Of course, Liverpool quickly emerging as Man City's, maybe just maybe, main title rivals this year. So I'm looking forward to that, Georgia. Some massive fixtures across the weekend as well. Man United, they go to Goodison Park because there's been a little bit of respite for Eric Ten Hag, that of course will uh, will dissipate if he loses at Goodison Park over this weekend. And very quickly as well, on the subject of cricket, India, a little modicum of revenge for them last night. They have taken the opening T20 match against Australia. It was a thriller. It went down to the last ball. They made the required runs. India 209. They chopped off their target. Fantastic victory for them. They are 1-0 up in the five-match 
series. Loads beside going on, there's simply not enough time to talk about it. And very quickly though, Baseball United, good luck to all of those involved. Of course, the opening showcase tonight, there's another one tomorrow evening right here in Dubai. Dubai International Stadium tickets, I believe, are still available. Check them out, baseballunited.com. Good luck to Cash and all of the team down there. So you're well catered for. You've got baseball in Dubai, Formula One down in Abu Dhabi, and you've got a weekend full of football and other sports, whatever tickles your fancy. Chris McCarty, as ever, thank you very much indeed for sending that through. You will be able to hear more Chris and more Robbie and more Sonal uh, straight after Helen Farmer's show this afternoon from 5pm. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.